Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Stand up for what you believe in. It's something many of our parents taught us growing up. And for the most part, great changes in our world come from groups of people who stand up for what they believe in. However, these stands should never cost people their lives. On February 13, 1979, a man was born who would develop a series of beliefs, ones I don't agree with for obvious reasons, and use the lives of many to try and prove his point. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Anders Bering Breivik was born in Oslo on February 13, 1979. Unfortunately, his mother, Benka Bering, developed a deep disdain for the baby growing inside of her and claimed he was a nasty boy who was kicking her on purpose and had only kept her pregnancy viable because she missed the cutoff for abortion. I bet you can imagine the type of mother she turned out to be. She thought he was an evil boy and stopped breastfeeding him abruptly when she claimed he was sucking the life out of her. Psychologists would later describe her as a horrible woman who morphed her son into the monster he became. And when his parents divorced when he was just a year old, despite his father's fight, he ended up in the custody of his mother. Neighbors living next to the pair heard constant fighting, and Venka was known to leave children alone for long periods of time while she worked her shifts as a nurse. When he was about two to three years old, Venka applied for respite care and sent Anders to live with another couple for a while. A couple who told police that, upon bringing the boy into their home, his mother asked that her son be allowed to touch the man's penis because, quote, all he ever saw were girls' parts and needed someone to compare his genitals with. Experts say that this is a sign that Anders was being sexually abused by his mother at just two years old. At the age of four, on the advice of her neighbors, Venka brought Anders to the National Center for Children and Adolescent Psychiatry, where psychologists would report that they feared for Anders' mental health. 
that his mother was sexualizing him, and that the boy was not in touch with his own emotions. Their solution was to take Anders from his mother's care, as she was absolutely the root of all of his issues. Unfortunately, child welfare services did not follow this recommendation, as they did not understand the magnitude in which Venka was abusing her child. They continued to try and force the young boy into foster care, all of which failed. So his father, who was made aware of the situation, attempted to step in and filed for custody. Despite telling her son that she wanted him dead and putting him in respite care to get rid of him, the custody filing from her ex-husband angered her enough that she demanded to take Anders back and keep him in her care at all times. Lawyers got involved, but eventually the case was dropped. Anders eventually entered into his teens and was described as having a rebellious streak. This mostly included graffiti, and he was caught by police on several occasions and was fined twice for his actions. It was also around this time that he lost contact with the only stable person in his life, his father. Venko would later say that after a particular run-in with the police at the age of 16, his father stopped contacting Anders. His father says that his son just stopped calling and that they remained out of contact for the rest of his life. Anders did the same with a very small group of friends he had amassed and became a complete loner by the age of just 16. He began obsessively working out, taking steroids, and started voicing his disdain for the Norwegian Labor Party, a group his mother was part of, for being a feminist. While still a juvenile, he was arrested and rejected from entering the Norwegian Armed Forces was determined to be unfit for service, and at the age of 20, joined an anti-immigration right-wing progress party and chaired his local branch of the party's youth organization. Hatred that had been brewing inside of Anders for years was starting to rear its head in the form of a deep hatred for people from any outside country, specifically those of Arab or South Asian origin. He left the progress party in 2006, joined a gun club, and founded his own computer programming company that he would later use to fund a terrorist attack plan he had been forming in his mind since the year 2002. He raised and lost millions of kroner, and when his business was declared bankrupt after several breaches with the law, he had to move back into his toxic mother's home to finish saving the last bits of money. He traveled to get all of the weaponry he needed, illegally of course, played video games like Call of Duty to train, and then moved out into a farm where he had used his company to purchase large amounts of artificial fertilizer to build his own explosives. By the summer of 2011, he was ready to enact his years-long plan. On July 22, 2011, Anders Bering Breivik drove a white Volkswagen Crafter into the center of Oslo and parked it in front of the H-Block, which housed the office of the Prime Minister, Ministry of Justice, the police, and several other governmental buildings. Surveillance cameras watched as he, dressed in a police officer's uniform, got out of the van and walked hurriedly to another parked car that he had planted. At around 3.25 p.m. Central European summertime, the bomb within the van detonated and sent a shockwave throughout the square. It started fires, blew out windows on all floors, sent debris shooting into the sky, and covered the city with a thick white smoke. When the area was cleared and evacuated, they found the bodies of eight people killed in the blast. A witness who was able to see Anders walk to his car in uniform called police to report the suspicious activity. 
The report, which included the information that he was an armed officer entering an unmarked vehicle and had the license number of that vehicle, was written down on a yellow note and hand-delivered to a police operations center where it sat for 20 minutes before the witness was called back and the license number was not transmitted over police radio for another two hours. About an hour and a half after the explosion in Oslo, Anders drove to the ferry, boarded as an officer named Martin Nielsen, and headed to the island of Utea, where approximately 600 teenagers attended a Workers' Youth League summer camp. Upon arrival, he told officers that he was a police officer, who had come over for a routine check following the bombing that had just occurred in Oslo. When the camp leader grew suspicious and called for a security officer, Anders opened fire. As the shooting began, teenagers began locking themselves in rooms, hiding under furniture and in undergrowth, and jumping into the lake off of the island while men from the surrounding areas got in their boats to try and collect children out of the water and from nearby caves. While sending out his hollow point bullets, he kept yelling, you are going to die today, Marxists. The shooting lasted about an hour and a half before a special task force arrived and Anders surrendered. 69 people on the island lost their lives to this extremist, the youngest being just 14 years old, and another 66 were wounded. The attack, when all of the numbers were totaled, was considered the deadliest in Norway since World War II, and the shooting remains the deadliest mass shooting by a lone perpetrator in history. During the shooting, he called the emergency number twice to surrender, killing people in between each call and both times was hung up on. According to Anders, the reason he went to the island was because the former prime minister was there giving a speech, and he wanted to make her his main target, but was delayed, and by the time he got there, she was gone. He also went on to say that the purpose of the attacks was to save Norway and Western Europe from a Muslim takeover, and that the Labour Party had to pay the price for letting down the country, something he expressed in his manifesto that he electronically distributed the day of the attacks. Anders Bering Breivik was brought back to Oslo, charged with violating the Norwegian criminal code, and placed in three adjoining prison cells where he could eat, sleep, and watch TV while he awaited his trial. He was examined by two psychiatrists while in prison. One stated that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, while the second said he was merely a narcissist. These two very different exams caused some issue in regards to his trial. If the first diagnosis stuck, he would not be sent to prison for murdering 77 people and would instead be placed in a psychiatric hospital. When brought in for a pretrial hearing, Anders prepared a statement in which he demanded to be released and treated as a hero for his, quote, preemptive attack against traitors. His official trial began on April 16, 2012, and on August 24th, he was found sane and guilty of ending the lives of 77 innocent people. He was sentenced to containment for 21 years, of which he must serve 10 years, which is the maximum penalty in Norway. While behind bars, Anders has written a number of manifestos, planned to set up his own organization called the Conservative Revolutionary Movement, and written three books to try and continue his activism from behind bars. He has also claimed that he has had his civil rights impeded on because his cell isn't heated, guards interfere with his schedule, he doesn't have a good view, he doesn't have candy, has to drink cold coffee, 
and needed his PlayStation 2 upgraded to a PlayStation 3. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 14th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response, plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms, and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief, and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match, which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, And with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morningcup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. 